Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, as the song said, we need to hear from you. There's nothing more important in our life, nothing more needed for us as your people, nothing more needed for all of humanity than to actually hear you. But Lord, we pray that it would not just be words, that the things we hear this morning would not be for us just simply words, but that they would reach into our heart, grip us, grab us, challenge us, cause us to think about what you have given to us and how we are so enriched by you. And how through your very spirit we can follow what you would have for us. So teach us, Lord, as we open your word this morning, that your name would be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we are returning to the section we were in last time, verses 7 to 13. I'll just ask the guys in the sound room. This seems a little hot, guys, up there. Can you turn this down just a hair? Thank you. Verses 7 to 13, with the intended purpose of really getting a bit deeper, as I said last time, into the subject of how sin actually deceives us. How it deceives us, specifically us as Christians, those of us who know Jesus Christ by faith, but also how it deceives mankind in general. We ended our time last Lord's Day understanding that there is an eternally dangerous condition that none of us who profess to know Jesus Christ ought to be in. It's an eternally dangerous condition for us who say that we believe upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. There is an eternally dangerous condition that we should not be in. And that condition is this. It is to feel or it is to believe in some way that now in your spiritual condition, Now that you know Jesus Christ by faith, now that you have professed and say you believe in Jesus Christ, that you now no longer in some way need to deal with sin or that you are not a sinner at all. Let me say that again. It is eternally dangerous for someone who says they believe in Jesus Christ to now, because they believe in Jesus Christ, to think or believe or feel in some kind of way that they no longer have to deal with sin or are no longer a sinner at all. In John's first epistle, he clearly tells us that that kind of thinking is part of sin's deception. He says, if we say that we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. And even worse, he goes on to say in 1 John 1, 8, not only do we deceive ourselves, but the truth is not in us. So if someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that God saved me. Someone says that, says that with words, and yet in their reality of life and in their very heart, they believe they no longer have sin, they no longer have to deal with sin, then the reality is that they are deceived and the truth is not in them. That is a dangerous place to be. But what we find often within Christendom, and certainly within the world at large, are not a few, but many, many, many people who will say with all genuineness that they do not feel that they are sinners. After all, they've lived a moral life. They have worked very hard at being the best they can be. And even for others who claim to know Christ in Christendom, They've done their very best to follow all of the commands that God gives in His Word. I've done my very best to live as the Scriptures tell me to live. If you compare me with other people, it seems to me that I am a spiritually mature person. And so why do both of those groups of people feel that way? Why do they feel that way? Because the truth of God has not really got to them. And these words of the Apostle Paul have been striking in my mind. And I I hope they strike you as well. They're found in verse 9. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. You see, that's the description of what I have been just simply saying to you about many, many people within Christendom and specifically even within the world. From Paul's assessment of himself, as Paul looked at himself, he wasn't a sinner at all. He wasn't a sinner at all. I was alive apart from the law. I'm alive. I'm doing pretty good. I'm a, I'm a really good guy. I, I do everything I need to do apart from any actual conviction of the law upon his life. He saw himself as alive, living. And yet the first sign of actual spiritual life in Paul was not when he felt alive, but rather when he sensed his deadness. The first real reality of Paul's spiritual aliveness at all was not the first part of verse 9, but rather the last part of verse 9. Sin became alive, and I died. When the command came, he says, sin was stirred up. We learned last time that what Paul means by that is not that this was the first time that he had ever heard the law, as if he was walking in his aimlessness and by some means somebody handed him the, the Hebrew Scriptures and he finally said, oh, this is the first time I ever heard of the command of God. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is simply saying, when the command came to me with conviction upon my heart, when my spiritual eyes were opened 
And that's a miraculous hand of God upon Paul. When I finally got it, I realized my true condition. Paul says, I was dead spiritually. I was dead. Can we all, with praise in our hearts this morning, just simply thank God that every person who sees their spiritual deadness is in the right place for salvation? Can we just thank God for that? Until you see your reality of your spiritual deadness before a holy God, you are no closer to God than you will ever be. You are as far and separated from God than you will ever be because you think you're okay. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how is it then that a person can feel so alive when they're actually dead? How can a person actually feel alive, feel so self-justified? How can they feel so self-satisfied even though they are truly spiritually dead? How can the Christian, the real Christian, be so convinced that they are actually spiritually mature by all the outward activity, but in reality, they're spiritual infants. In fact, some aren't even alive at all. How does this happen? How does that happen to people? Well, we are told how it happens in an overall general way by the Apostle Paul here in the words that he gives us in verse 11. Notice what he says. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now here's the explanation as to why so many people are on the wide road, and even why some Christians, some who have actually been saved for a long time, why they have remained spiritual infants, and yet are thinking they are mature Christians. Here's the answer. The deceptiveness of sin. That's the answer. Why is the world in the trouble it's in? The deceptiveness of sin. Why are you and I at times uh, struggling with things in our life? The deceptiveness of sin. This is the answer, and we need to have this clear in our minds. The biblical teaching and understanding of sin is an absolute necessity if we are to truly understand salvation. You cannot have an understanding of salvation. You cannot have an understanding of what Paul has been arguing for since chapter 1, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of soteriology, as you might read in some of your theology books. This idea of how someone can be right with God, you will not have a right understanding of that salvation until you have a right understanding of sin. You will not have a right understanding of your practical holiness as a Christian, your sanctification, until you understand sin, the deceptiveness of sin. Sin is the troublemaker. Sin is the troublemaker. 
Sin is a great deceiver. And as I said last time, behavior is not our problem in society and behavior is not our problem in the church. The fix to our problems are not educational. The fix to our problems are not psychological. The fix to our problems are not economical. The fix to our problem is Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ can take care of the problem of sin because our problem is sin. Sin even takes the good, sin even takes the righteous, sin even takes the holy law of God and uses it as its base of operation for all kinds of trouble with us. This is what we learned last time. Sin is not simply powerful, sin is powerfully deceitful. We have to understand that. Sin is not just some powerful entity over here, sin is powerfully deceitful so specifically how does it deceive us that's the question we're asking how does it deceive us how does sin use the law to deceive us and remember when we're speaking of the law we're talking about the scriptures we're not simply talking about the old testament ceremonial laws by which the, the nation of Israel was called to go to the temple and offer sacrifices and these kinds of things. We're not talking about ceremonial realities. We're talking about the scriptures as a whole, the principles by which we are called by God as his children to walk by faith in. How does it use that to deceive us? In our time remaining this morning, I want us to look into this so that we can better understand just how this can be active in us and just how deceptive sin is in our lives. We may be sitting here this morning all pretty self-assured with ourselves because we've been doing pretty good, or at least we think so. That's why I read Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Put on the armor of God. Why? Because sin is such a deceptive foe. And I want us to see this morning at least a little bit, a little glimpse to the realities of how sin deceives us. So for all of you kids who are keeping notes for Katie's class, there's going to be five points. Make sure you get them all. She needs to cook a lot of pancakes. The first way, the first way the sin deceives us, not by way of priority, but simply by way of our list, the way I've listed them. The first way that sin deceives us Sin deceives us about the law's purpose. Sin deceives us about the law's purpose. In other words, it tempts us to use the law in unlawful ways. Sin tempts us to use the law in unlawful ways. You say, you may remember, I quoted for us last time 1 Timothy 1.8. 1 Timothy 1.8 partially says this, The law is good if... A man uses it lawfully. The law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Paul's not saying the law that we make the law good. He's not saying that. When the spirit of the law is obeyed, we make the law good. Paul's not saying that in that verse. What, what he is saying is, because we have no effect upon the law, we have no effect upon the essence of the law in any kind of way, what Paul is saying is that upon the condition, that's the if, 
upon the condition that the law is exercised according to its intent, then the result is a good result. That's that's what Paul's meaning in 1 Timothy 1.8. As long as the law is being used, or if the law in this condition is being exercised according to the intent, and I'll use it in a, in a, a fashion of Bible interpretation, according to the intent of the author, and the author is God, the law is being used according to the intent it was given, then the result of that is a good result. The law is good, Paul says in verse 12 of Romans chapter 7. The law is good, holy, good for everything. It's good for everyone involved when it is used as God intends it to be used. But what does sin do with it? Yeah, that's, the, that's the purpose of the law, to be used as God intended it to be used. But what's sin do with it? Sin comes along, sin in us, our own sin, comes along and it tempts us to actually ignore the law. To actually just ignore it altogether. Sin comes along and says something like this to us. All right, listen, the law doesn't matter. The law doesn't matter to you. It doesn't need to matter to you. Don't worry yourself with doing what the law says. I know what the law says, sin saying, but, but don't worry yourself with doing what the law says. Why? Don't worry about your outward acts. Your desires and your thoughts don't matter anyway. Why? Because after all, you are under grace. Don't do the law. Don't worry about it. You're under grace. You see, sin tempts us to believe that if we aren't actually doing anything inherently bad, then I'm not actually sinful in what I'm doing. As long as I'm not doing something inherently bad or something inherently prohibited by the law, therefore by inaction I'm keeping the law in the right kind of way, I'm not sinful. Sin comes along and has us ask the question, what's wrong with it when we're doing things? What's wrong with it? My children growing up in their growing up years were just like their father in his growing up years, and they would say oftentimes, well, Dad, what's wrong with it? As long as I'm not doing the things that it says not to do, then aren't I doing good? In my actions, aren't I doing good? And thereby, sin says, by your actions, you're justified. Go ahead and do it. This is Paul prior to his conversion in Acts chapter 9. As long as he didn't do what the law prohibited, or as long as he did outwardly what it said, he was self-justified. But sin had deceived him. Sin had deceived him to define the intent of the law as outward actions only. That the purpose of the law was simply this rule book, and as long as you kept that on an outward sense, you were good to go. According to that, you're okay. That's what sin does. And that's the condition of the moral legalist of our day. Justifying their salvation by means of morality, by means of outward activity compared to everybody else, and their activity by means of some kind of religiosity. 
That's the, that's the same as the Christian legalist. Someone says, well, that's somebody on the outside of the church. Someone not say, yeah, what about those in the church? The Christian legalist who is convinced that they're sanctified, that they're holy by means of their acts outwardly. That you become somehow holy in those activities. As long as I am not violating the law of God outwardly, then I am a mature Christian. Sin tempts us. Tends us to use the law, to see the law in that first kind of way. That the law is the means to justification. That the law is the means by which I am made a mature Christian. That's the first way that sin tempts us with the law. Yeah, sure, the law's there. Sin just acknowledges that. Yep, the law's there. But don't worry about it. You don't have to do it. The second way follows on the heels of the first way. The second way sin comes along, it really heads in the opposite direction. First direction was just, just don't worry about it. You're under grace. The second is the opposite direction. What is that? Sin deceives us as to the consequences of the law. Sin deceives us as to the consequences of the law. In other words, it takes those of us who would acknowledge our sinfulness, those of us who go, yeah, okay, you're right, I'm sinful. It takes us who heartily agree with our assessment, and sin agrees with it with us. In our lives, we sin in some way. Right? This is what happens. We, we, we sin. We're a Christian. We, we, we sin in some way, in thought, word, deed, somehow, and our conscience begins to ring the bell of guilt upon us. And we know we've sinned. It reminds us of what God's Word says. Sin comes along. Begins to deceive us by agreeing with us. Sin says, you're right. You're right, brother. You've failed horribly, in fact. You haven't just sinned. You've failed horribly. God's law is absolutely holy. God's law is absolutely just, sin says. And you violated it. You violated not just the jot. You violated the tittle as well. You violated the smallest parts. You are completely hopeless. How dare you even claim that you're a Christian? You know what happens? Far too often we begin to believe that. We we begin to believe we are hopeless. Why should I even try anymore? We say to ourselves, I failed so badly. It really doesn't matter if I sin again. It's not going to get any worse anyway. And so we sin again. Same thing happens and we sin again. Same thing happens and we sin again. Same thing happens and we sin again. We're caught in this spiral. Having been convinced by our sins that it really doesn't matter. The consequences don't really matter since we've already sinned. Once again, sin has misused the law to our demise. So sin says, look, do the law. 
That's the first thing sin says, right? Do the law. Yeah, go ahead, because that's the means by which you can be holy. Do the law, because that's the means by which you can be justified before God. Go ahead, do the law, because that's the way in order to be right with God. And then sin says when we fail, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about violating the law since you have already. Its consequences don't really matter anymore. Go ahead, just sin away, because the consequences don't matter. Then, third way, sin says, just forget the law altogether. Just forget the law altogether. You have no need for the law at all. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. We sin. We sin. And, and once again, we are conscious that we have violated God's righteous standard. We're not walking as we know we should walk, even as Christians. Our hearts are being crushed under the true conviction that comes with guilt, rightful guilt. And then our sin tempts us to do that which we should not do. Sin comes in like a comforting friend. Sin comes in and says, you know what? You're right. You're right. You did violate God's righteous standard, but listen, hey, listen, listen. You don't have to concern yourself with all of that. Why? Because, listen, you aren't under the law anyway. You're not under it anyway. It's not needed for you. You're under grace. And after all, where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You're a saved person. Don't worry yourself with the law. For you, it's just not needed anymore. You don't need the law. And when we're in that condition, when we as Christians are in that condition, we are on the verge of being Full-blown, grace-abusing antinomians. Full-blown, grace-abusing antinomians. We are people who are actually feeling as if through the law, get this, God is actually against us. When we're in that condition, we are now in the condition where we actually believe that God's law is not something good for us, but actually something bad for us. We have been deceived just like Eve. You're deceived into believing that what God has said is actually bad. That the law of God is actually a bad thing. And that through the command... God actually wants to hold you back from what is actually good. See, we become like Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Satan said to her, Now Eve, has God actually said that, what you just said to me? Well, we shall not touch from the, any tree or eat from the tree any tree in the Garden of Eden. Well, we can do that, but, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we can't touch that, we can't eat from that. Has God actually said that? You know what the serpent meant when he said that? Here's what he meant when he said that. In his words, the implication of his words, 
God is actually against you, Eve. God is actually against you by telling you that. You see, sin comes along and convinces us that we are reading the law correctly. That we're reading it correctly. And that what it actually means is that God is against us rather than for us. So sin undermines the very character of God that is shown in the law. It says, forget God's law altogether. You don't need it. You don't need it because God is actually against you rather than for you. The sad part is it just doesn't stop there. Sin doesn't stop there. It actually goes even a bit farther than that. Because in the persuasion that the law is bad, in the persuading that the law is unneeded, that we don't need the law as Christians, is also the implication that the law is unjust in its demands. That when God says for us to do something, when God says that we should not do something, that is actually unjust. In other words, the law of God is made to appear to be a restrictive reality to everything in life that seems to be enjoyable. And it tempts us in the directions in everything that we don't like. Maybe you've heard it expressed in this way by someone that you may have shared the gospel with. Oh, the Bible. Huh. That's just a book of do's and don'ts. You ever heard that? The Bible, that's just a book of, a rule book to to restrict your life. That's what's really meant. But the implication of that kind of statement is this. It's an unreasonable book. It's not just a rule book. It's an unreasonable book. Don't follow the Scriptures at all because they're unreasonable. It's completely impossible at worst to try to follow it, and it's unfair at best. It's actually an unneeded hindrance to your real living. So get rid of it. But sin says you don't need it. So sin tempts us to hate it tempts us to hate it. And so when it speaks, because of a hate for it, we desire to do everything it says not to do. All the more. The sad part about that is, oftentimes we say we love it, but by our practice we actually hate it. Which just shows the depth of deception of sin because we don't ever go to it. We say we love it, but we don't read it. We say we love it, but we keep it on the shelf and only pick it up on that one day where we come to the building that we say we worship God at. So it deceives us about its purpose. It deceives us about its consequences. It deceives us as to whether we need it or not. There's a fourth way sin deceives us. Sin deceives us about us. 
Sin just flat out deceives us about us. You say, well, in what way? In what way does it deceive us about us? Sin tempts us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That's what it does. You say, well, how so? Well, when I am actually walking in truth, and when I'm actually rightly obeying God, sin comes along and begins to tempt me to believe that I'm actually pretty good. You look at yourself in the mirror and you go, man, I've done well today. And I've done well because of me. The goodness that you see in me is me produced. I did good. Sin begins to praise me. It actually begins to tempt me with questions like, hey, you're doing really good, brother. Why should you be held down by the law? You're doing really good in what you're doing. You're doing good, so why would God put limits on you? Once again, it harkens back to the garden with Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Has God said that you are not to eat the fruit of any tree? Has God said that you're not to eat the fruit of any tree? Some truth, you're not to eat fruit, but not of any tree, just the one tree. That was the true statement. Now here's what is in that question that Satan asks. Here's what's in it. You're doing really well, Eve. So why, why, you tell me why. Why should you be deprived of what you actually want? You know you want that tree. Why should you be deprived? You're doing pretty good. Go ahead, assert yourself. After all, Eve, you worked really hard for it. You deserve it. And, by the way, Eve, hasn't God actually freed you up to live your own life? Here's how that sounds in our day. Non-Christian says, I have my rights. I have my rights. It's the expression of autonomy. I have my rights. You can't tell me what to do. It's my life. I mean, this is the mantra of the Western culture, specifically, let alone the world. I have my rights. Sin tempts us to believe that we are autonomous. That not only can we do what we want, but we will get saved when we want. We'll tell God when we're going to accept Him. It's up to me. I don't need anything outside of me trying to control me. I have my rights. It's what I want to do. This even happens in the realm of our Christian freedoms as Christians. This I have my rights mantra. The law comes along and says that we are to think of others more highly than ourselves. That's what the scriptures say. And we Christians are so good at that, aren't we? As long as it doesn't encroach upon my personal desire that I have been convinced do not affect others then I'm good at loving others more highly than myself as long as it doesn't encroach upon something that I want. 
told my wife, I'll probably get some bad press for this. But that's okay. Because here's one of the big ones. The drinking of alcohol. Sin says to us, hey, listen, have a drink. Go ahead and have a drink of alcohol. That's not a sin. Getting drunk is the sin. You get drunk, you're sinful. If you have a drink of alcohol, that's not sinful. So as long as you're not drunk, you don't even need to think about it. Even if a weaker brother is caused to stumble into sin as they follow your example, don't worry about that. Weaker brother or sister just needs to mature up. Weaker brother or sister just needs to get with the program in their own biblical understanding. I'm not going to forego my own Christian freedom, and what I mean by that is my own right for the weaker brother. I'm not doing that. And in that way, guess what? We quickly become one who believes we are autonomous. That my actions have no effect on anybody else. I do what I want. Do it my way. Even as we are violating the law of love. Alcohol is just one of them, guys. We do this with many, many, many things. Oftentimes our freedoms become stumbling blocks for those who are spiritually weaker than we are. Deadly combination. Deadly combination. In fact, go back for a moment to Matthew chapter 18. Because maybe the words that I just said just aren't resonating. Maybe they're just not there in your heart. Jesus had a few things to say about this. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, at the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now it's interesting that he takes the reality of a child and uses the life and idea of a child and their makeup as an adjective to describe what a Christian conversion and their life is to be like when you come to Jesus. This is like a child. A child is fully dependent. A child is fully trusting. A child doesn't seem to ask all the questions for the sake of uh, needing to know all the minutia so they can figure out a way in order to which way they might obey or not obey. They're just like children. They believe almost everybody in everything. Jesus says, whoever then, verse 4, humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uses the description of a humble, a humility that is inherent in a child because of their age and lack of maturity and just their trusting faith as the description for how we are great in the kingdom of heaven through complete humility. Anyone who receives such a one in my name receives me. But. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it's better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's a pretty severe consequence. That's a better consequence than what will be happening if you don't care about causing others to stumble. In other words, having a millstone tied around your neck thrown into the depths of the ocean so that you plummet to the bottom and drown like a dog 
it's that's a better scenario and picture as ugly and grotesque as that might be than what is the reality in the heart of God to those who cause one of his children to stumble. God takes it very, very seriously. Verse 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Jesus says, listen, the world's full of it. Woe to them because of stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, how do you deal with the things in your life that you might have by which they could be stumbling blocks? If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, you cut it off and throw it from you. He's not saying literally chop your feet off. He's saying, listen, it takes sometimes radical reality to in order to control the things that might cause others to stumble. Deal with them in a radical kind of way. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than have two hands and feet and cause someone to stumble, to be cast into eternal fire. Same thing with your eyes. See that you don't despise the little ones, verse 10. For I say to you that even the angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ takes it very seriously. The reality of living in such a way so that others who may be weaker than you are, either spiritually or otherwise, are not caused to stumble because of our actions, even our Christian freedom. So sin deceives us by tempting us about the law's purpose. It says by way of law you can be justified or by way of law you can be holy. It tempts us by way of the law's consequences. Don't worry about the consequences. They don't matter. So since you've sinned already, just go ahead and sin again. Go on, go on, go on. Or the fact that you don't need the law at all. You're doing pretty good. Why would you have the law? It's just restrictive. It deceives us about ourselves. Trying to convince us that we're autonomous, that nothing else matters. We have our rights. We can do what we want. After all, we're Christians. I have my Christian freedoms. Don't don't hold me down. And then the fifth way, sin deceives us about sin. Sin deceives us about sin. You say, how does it do that? It does that by presenting sin as something that's attractive. Something that's attractive. Again, in Genesis chapter 3, Eve saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eye. You know what that's saying? That's saying that Eve believed that it was going to be all that it appeared to be for her and that it said that the serpent said it was going to be for her. It appeared to be all the attractive things and all the consequential things were thrown out the door that if she actually disobeys God, she's going to get exactly what her heart desires and what's being stirred up by the evil one. But she was deceived. Genesis chapter 3, Eve even said that to God, the serpent deceived me. She was deceived, and that is exactly what Paul says happens to all of us. He tells us in Romans 7, sin takes opportunity through the commandment and deceives us. Deceives us. 
Sin makes the Christian life look very boring. Sin makes the Christian life look like it's no fun at all and without any excitement at all. And by the way, isn't that exactly what he did with Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 when he took him into the wilderness? Look, Jesus, your life is just a big bore. Satan takes Jesus and he tempts him in the wilderness and he takes him on a high mountain and he shows him all the the kingdoms of the world. And what does it say there? And their glory. That's what he says. He says, look at all this. Look at all the glory. Look at all the good things. Look at all the fun that's out there. Look at all the wonder that's out there. Look at all that you could have. All of these things I'll give you if you'll just disobey the Father, if you'll fall down and worship me. Look at your life, Jesus. You're out here wandering in the desert. Look at where you are. You've been preaching. Growing up in your life, you're missing out on so much you could have. Go ahead, exercise your autonomy. Do what you want. It's time for you to get what you want. Fulfill your desire, the things you deserve. When you do that, your life is going to be so much better. It's going to be so much brighter. Sin paints itself with bright colors. Disguises any thought of the ugly consequences that come the destruction that's included in it. Satan said to Eve, surely you will not die. Surely you will not die. And yet that's exactly what happened to her. The results were disguised. It's part of the seduction of sin, isn't it? Hides any sense of justice, any sense of punishment. There'll be no consequences if you do that. Don't worry about it. That is part of the seduction. The end reality is hell itself. That's where it will take you. And the greatest deceit of sin is what it says about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest deceit of sin. It says that Jesus was just a mere man says that Jesus isn't God. Don't worry about that. He's just a man. Oh, yeah, he, he was a man. His sacrifice, however, is meaningless for any salvation. It doesn't do anything for you. He was just a good man. He, he lived a lot of years ago. That's true. His body, though, is still in the ground. It's somewhere. Nobody just can find it. Everybody decays. Since as a story of salvation by grace through faith in Him alone is just a myth. Don't believe it. Made up by men to keep other men under control. But you're wiser than that. Don't believe it. Listen, sin isn't just deceitful. Sin is anti-Christian. Sin is anti-Christian. Sin is anti-Christ. Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, 1 John says, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Paul says that sin does this work. How? By darkening our understanding. Romans chapter 1 says, darkens our understanding. 
Praise God, as Christians, we don't need to be deceived. Just as Jesus Christ wasn't deceived when he was tempted. Just as he did, we must do. We have to combat sin's temptation through holding on to the word of God rightly divided. This is why it's so important for you to understand how to rightly divide the word of God. I was reading a book this week. I was sharing it with, with Randy this morning. I'm going to share it with the guys at our next Monday night class because we're talking about false teachers. I was reading a book this week. It was a 135-page book, and I read it at my lunch hour because it was that riveting. Not really, and I'm not a speed reader. That's how theologically deep it was, but it's from someone whom all of you would know who said some things in there that are true but not true enough. Deceptive, confusing. We have to combat sin's temptation through holding to the Word of God rightly divided. We can and we must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We must not put the Lord God to the test. Our task is to worship the Lord our God and Him only not the deceptiveness of sin. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So let us stand fast. Let us resist the devil. And not be deceived of anything about the law's purpose. Let us not be deceived in any way about the law's consequences. Let us not be deceived in any way about our need for the law. Let us not be deceived in any kind of way about ourselves when it comes to sin. Don't think, oh, hey, you got a handle on all this. Listen, you don't. Listen, you need to always be battling. Let's not be deceived about sin itself. It's a crafty one. Eternally deceitful wanting all of us to blaspheme the name of God for its glory. And our desire is simply to honor and glorify God in every way. The best way we can do that is to follow after His Word with unwavering, unwavering obedience for the right reason. And when you obey, praise God that you obeyed because He's the one who allowed it through His Spirit. And when God matures you in your Christian life, don't say, hey, look at I've arrived. I don't need to learn anymore. Listen, that's just the temptation of sin to say, look at me. I did it by outward activity. None of our outward activity means anything if the heart is wrong before God. The law is holy, righteous, and good. So where's the battle? Paul tells us, Verses 14 to 25. We'll get to that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for these things this morning. I trust that our hearts are thinking, thinking about what you've told us, thinking the ways in which it's happening in us, the easy subtleness, uh, subtleness of of how sin deceives us. 
Lord, help us to be humble before you. Your word tells us to this one you look, to he who is contrite, who is humble in spirit, and who trembles at your word. Help us to tremble at your word. And always know that any good in us is because of you. And any failure in us has nothing to do with you and everything to do with our sin. We thank you for eternally saving us and equipping us now to be able to walk by faith and have victory, to put on the armor that we might resist the evil one, that we might stand fast, be strengthened in your might in order that we might walk as you would have us. Imitators of God, walking by faith. Help us do that, Lord, even now and this week. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.